I remember the first time I saw the 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. Star Rookie Card. I was 8 years old, and the place smelled like leather. That's because the store I saw then was primarily a leather shop where they sold leather jackets, wallets, etc. <laughs> no baseball gloves though. But in the middle of the store, they had an area where they sold cards. Pretty random, but it sort of worked. I remember staring in the glass case at the Griffey rookie card for what felt like hours. I never saw a card like it up close. I was instantly captivated by its simplicity with the bright white borders, beautiful coloring, and an image that would become the symbol of modern day cards. Like most works of art, it all starts with a compelling image, and Upper Deck featured the perfect up-close photograph of the kid, who ultimately became the face of the game and the hobby for a generation. Who better to discuss this generational and iconic card with than the man who was single-handedly responsible for putting together the Griffey rookie card and the entire 89 Upper Deck set? He was Upper Deck's first employee and is currently the president of Sage Collectibles, Tom Guideman. Hey, Tom, it's Chris. Chris, how's it going? All is well here, man. How's everything out in California? I can't complain. Just grinding away. We're working on... Uh stage trading card product for this upcoming season of rookies what's going on that's fantastic so i'm starting season two of my podcast and i wanted to kick it off by talking about the card of my generation the 1989 upper deck ken griffey jr rookie card i know you know something about that card i, I, I know a little something about that <laughs> <laughs> do you have some time to talk about it uh sure what's on your mind i'm chris stuber and this is episode six of the baseball cards daily podcast Tom, can you believe this is the 30th anniversary of the 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. Rookie Card? Actually, at, until you mentioned it, I didn't really think about it being 30 years, but I just had my 30th high school reunion, so it makes sense. <laughs> so I guess they kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's rewind. You're 18 years old, the first employee at Upper Deck, and tasked with selecting the players who would be in their first card set and coming up with the order. That's a lot of pressure for a young guy. What was your mindset at the time? Probably the best thing I did was not think too much. <laughs> <laughs> we had VJ uh, Lavero, who was a team photographer for the California Angels, and he was a West Coast photographer for Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. He shot for some other stuff too, but extremely talented, extremely nice. And uh, he provided all the photography for Upper Deck, and he actually shot the picture that was on the Griffey card as well. And uh, as far as the, the photo part of it, he walked me through that type of stuff. And he did some pre-editing in the sense that if it was completely out of focus or, or whatever, that he, he rejected all those and didn't submit them. I'm sure he didn't have much, if any, because he was dealing with professional photographers you know, uh, who were submitting. But he helped with a, uh, a lot with the, with the photos, providing the content. And then I was sort of a rookie stockbroker. That's what I kind of termed myself because I was I knew like all the minor leaguers and all the top prospects and I was just a baseball nerd like I knew all kinds of stuff about everybody so uh and then you know I've had had years and years of years of experience with trading cards 
Um, in fact, my parents actually told me that I learned how to read off the back of trading cards. <laughs> That's great, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, oh, it's kind of a weird fact, but the exact day that I was born, um, it, it, Larry Fritch he used to have uh, ads on the back of SED and a bunch of magazines. And his tag at the very top, it said, America's first uh, full-time trading card dealer, May 1st, 1970, exactly the day that I was born. That's so, actually ironic. That's really ironic. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. Speaking of E.J. Levero, as you mentioned, the late Angels and Sports Illustrated photographer who Upper Deck acquired the famed image from for the Griffey card, would the Griffey card be as iconic or even exist today without V.J.? Uh, possibly not. So there's two parts that were required for it. So one, I, I generated a list of players that I wanted to include in the Star Rookies. Sure. And that list was about 40 people long. I think it was about 40. And we used that to acquire, to source the photos. So if I didn't have them on the list, you would never have made it on the, on the, the grouping. But I don't know of anybody who had, that we had access to as a photographer, mm-hmm. who had Griffey's shot from spring training or minor leagues or anything else, aside from BJ. You really needed both things to happen. So if he wasn't on the list, he wouldn't have been even considered. And if BJ hadn't have shot him, like I had Jerome Walton on the list, Dwight Smith, um, Jim Abbott, who obviously was coming straight out of Michigan. He was University of Michigan. Right. So we didn't have a whole lot of photos on him. But I had a list that was a lot more compelling than what actually became in the Star Rookies. And um, so we needed both. And actually, one of the things, looking back on it, when we did the High Series, we had Tom Gordon, who was, you know, the front runner for Rookie of the Year at that Absolutely, point, right. the pitcher for the Royals. And I didn't realize that we had photos of him shot in Anaheim Stadium the year before, in September, because he had no identifying features to him. He had no uniform number. He was just a warm-up that was shot from the side. So had I actually known that we had a photo of him, he would have been one of the star rookies as well. But I, but I had no idea what he looked like. So <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> <laughs> without any identifying features, you know, this is, well, before the internet yeah, this is, this is, and anything else. So yeah, absolutely. If he wasn't on the photo list or he wasn't identified properly, then we couldn't uh, have included him either. So he wasn't. So I'm curious, as you were looking through Lavero's extra photographs, and they were from the 1988 Sports Illustrated feature on Griffey and his dad, correct? Yes, Okay. exactly. Was there another photo you seriously considered using for the 89 Upper Deck Griffey card? Or was it love at first sight for the one that we all marvel over today? I'd say you could say it was love at first sight. So VJ was a, a master, and this is one of the terms he that taught me about, which is the photographer would frame the picture in his lens. So VJ being, and, and he, him being such an accomplished photographer, he would frame finished pictures, if you will, in his lens. And so when it came up on the slide, it was pretty much perfectly cropped and framed. So when we saw that, picture it was above the uniform so it didn't say spirit it was with the san Bernardino spirit sure. club. so it didn't have any anything below that needed to be removed and the way the design was set up it was actually 100 percent what he had shot in his lens wow there wasn't really any cropping involved it just fit perfectly in that space so once we put it we had slide projectors so i'd slide i put a in the bottom slide projector there were two and we projected against the wall, and the bottom slide projector would be a an outline, white and black, of what the cart design would be. 
white showing where the design is and black to accept the photograph that was in the top projector sure. above it. And then I'd line them up, crop it basically there, and then I would take the slide out and mark in the slide casing where the top, the bottom, the left, and the right were. Mm-hmm. And then I'd figure out mathematically the percentage that it needed to be enlarged and then write that on there. And then the grid number, the sheet number, and the card number. And then put that all in sheets for sleeve, or sleeves for the slides and then turn that into the um, production team. Putting together a card back then wasn't as easy as it is today with the amount of computer software and photographs that are available. <laughs> it's barbaric <laughs> if you consider the two. It really is. I can only imagine how much easier your job would have been if you had Photoshop back then. Instead, you had to use a machine called Cytex. Can you tell the listeners what Cytex was? So the Cytex, it's basically Photoshop before Photoshop. Right. And kind of what made Upper Deck so special was the Cytex machine. What Cytex did is they had a they had a drum scanner, so they would take the slides out of the casing, uh, most of the time slicing it open. Some popped open and then could be resealed, but most of them were, I think the Fujis were like just paper and you'd slice it open. And they take out the slide, they'd enlarge it to the percentage that it needed to be that I'd indicated, scan it in, and then place it basically where I had done it. So I had to do a thing called, it was a stat machine, and it would do a black and white stat, uh, photo stat of the image. Wow. And then I took a stencil and stenciled out on top of the photo stat what needed to be, like where it should be cropped specifically. And then they kind of just eyeballed what I had done to the finished product. And actually in that, the, so the Cytex machine, what it would do is that it would photo correct everything properly. The Fuji film has a blue cast to it. Kodak film had a red cast to it. A perfect example is uh, anything Miami. So Miami Dolphins, Miami Marlins, now the Miami Marlins, Florida Marlins. Anything teal. With Kodak, it would be green. And with Fuji, it would be blue. It, can, it was never the proper color. The Cytex machine would, they would highlight a color and click on it much like Photoshop now, and then it, it could be corrected to the actual color that was called out by the team. <laughs> it's such a process compared to what it would be today. It really is. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And the machine was, it's like the old days of like when they went to the moon and what your watch is probably a hundred or a thousand times better than right. a giant computer that took up a room <laughs> that sent everybody to the moon. It's, it's, yeah, it's just crazy the evolution of technology. I, I'm just curious, how much different do you envision if the Griffey car was created today, how much different would it be today? Well, I think it'd be a lot different. So um, one of the things that kind of drove me nuts is that the, all the call-outs that needed to be done to change the San Bernardino Spirit uniform into the Mariners-type uniform was uh, that I called out on a specific sheet. They corrected the hat. So basically, the Mariners hat was royal blue. This is the, you know, 88, 89 Mariner stuff. Royal blue with a, a yellow S. And the yellow S had a drop shadow, much like the 49ers uniforms had in the, like the Joe Montana, or the Steve Young Super Bowl. Yeah. It was 94. The blackout, type of right. Thing. Yep. Yeah. And uh, the San Bernardino Spirit uniform, it had a navy blue field, navy blue hat with a silver star, or the red star and a silver S. Right. And the S was similar to the Mariners font, 
but it wasn't identical because it didn't have that blackout, that black drop shadow mm-hmm. type thing. So they changed the red star to royal blue also, and then changed the silver S to a yellow S. And if you notice, Griffey's wearing a navy blue turtleneck on the card. That was called out to be royal blue because nobody's going to wear a royal blue <laughs> turtleneck. <with> no. a, <laughs> I mean, a, a, a navy turtleneck with a royal blue hat and uniform. So when I saw it, I'm like, oh, my God, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. I probably said something worse, but basically, <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> oh, yeah, so then, uh, but now it's sort of iconic that it's this, this card. Oh, no question. And from a design perspective, I love the look of 89 Upper Deck. It was just a clean design with a classic feel. Not to mention, the foil packs were a great touch and added something really unique. Who was the genius behind the branding? Was that you as well? I had some things to do with it because of my experience with trading cards and all that. Part of it is, um, I mean, it was just, uh, I don't really know what part it was what, but I know I had some involvement with it. So the tamper, it was, we were originally calling it tamper-proof packaging. And we found out that it was tamper-evident packaging, if you will. So they they changed the name, I guess, for liability or whatever. But back in the day, it was common practice. And then I had a neighbor exactly right across the street from my house growing up. And he was four years younger. And he did all kinds of dirty things to cards. He would take regular cards, like Bo Jackson rookie cards, and he'd spray gloss them and sell them as Tiffany edition, which were premium. Sure. You would take wax packs, open them up, search the packs, take all the good parts out, and then reseal it. Yeah. Usually with like an iron. And you could, so they were not tamper evident, mm-hmm. if you will. And then um, he took uh, reprint Pete Rose rookie cards where they had reprint on the back of the card, like right in the middle, right. small letters. And he wet his thumb and rubbed it out. Oh, man. And then crinkled up the card because a, a five authentic rookie card is more than a perfect 10, you know, reprint rookie card. So he did that. Oh, he shaved cards. He would get a razor blade out and a straight edge oh, and Jesus. trim corners. And and so if I was 18, he was 14. Right. And this is probably from 12 to 12 to 14 is, you know, when I was seeing some of the stuff that he had done. And he, he used to set up at shows and sell the shows as a dealer. Wow. Um, so a lot of that stuff became ingrained into the Upper Deck stuff. And actually a little known fact, but the 84 and 85 Donruss reprints are um, knockoffs, counterfeits, whatever you want to call them, the Mattingly's, 84 Mattingly's and the 85 Eric yeah. Davis, for yeah. example. Yep. One of the founders of Upper Deck was accused of making those. Really? Yeah. So he was the, the person who owned half of the trading card shop, Upper Deck, that I worked at, eventually sort of became Upper Deck, the card shop. That's and interesting. He had a background in printing, so it was a lot of that. And then Paul Sumner had a background in holography. Mm-hmm. He was the other founder. So the main two founders were Bill Hemrick and Paul Sumner. And kind of the short story of what happened there is Paul, who had no idea, he worked at Orvis, where the Cytex machine and everything else. He really didn't know much about sport. He came in to buy some stuff, I think, for his son's birthday party or something like that, or for his son's friend's birthday party. And he was looking at the cards, and this even included the 88 scores that were four-color on both sides. Right. And he said, these are essentially, paraphrasing, these are crap. I can do way better than these. <laughs> so that's where Upper Deck yeah. was born? Wow. Yeah. So basically, uh, Bill Hemrick and 
Paul Sunder started talking about everything because Paul just happened to walk into the shop and looked at how awful the printing was compared to what he was used to. How you became the first employee is because Upper Deck started out as a card store and it kind of morphed itself into a, a card manufacturer. Right. It's amazing. So, yeah. So there's actually kind of a funny story too, how I actually even started working at the card shop. So um, it's kind of a interesting, but has nothing to do with anything. But, uh, <laughs> That's okay. So in, uh, in senior year of high school, they had us take, uh, they had, they gave us 500 fake dollars for the stock market. And you were supposed to invest the $500 of fake money. And every day in the newspaper, you would chart, you know, buy, sell, trade stocks and keep track on our system. So there was a small loophole in the process because back in the day, they had afternoon papers and morning papers. And so we had asked, could we use the afternoon paper? Because my friends had afternoon papers. We had a morning paper. So the the teacher said, yes, you can use it because you're not going to go buy a new paper every day for this is when everybody had a newspaper. We all looked in the, scoured the whole stock market, found the one stock that had jumped the most between the morning paper up and the afternoon paper the day before. And we all bought that stock. So $500 became six, $700 overnight, basically, all within the guise of the system. And then I, I was buying and selling stuff. I eventually found this penny stock that was one sixty fourth of a dollar. And then like every day or every other day would double mm-hmm. to one thirty second. And so I just kept buying and selling and buying and selling. And I turned $500 and over a million dollars. Did you really? There's no way you can actually do that in the real world, but everything according to the system that they've set up, because I was buying 32 million shares of a penny stock, you know, right. 64 million shares of, I don't even know if 64 million shares exist, mm-hmm. and to sell them all at the one price is idiotic, you know, <laughs> there's no way that that could happen, but uh, that's what got me into the card shop when I told him the story of how I turned $500 into a million dollars, his eyes lit up, and he's like, you're hired. <laughs> so wait a second, hold on, hold on, hold on. You made a million dollars as a 17-year-old kid. Of fake money. Of yeah, fake, fake money. money. Okay, I got you. Okay, I missed yeah, that yeah. part. It wasn't real money. It was <laughs> okay. just, yeah, just on paper. Yeah, okay. there's no way it could actually have happened in real life. Okay, okay. But under the, the way the system was set up, I turned $500 into a million dollars. That's fantastic. Oh, the teacher thought I cheated and gave me a C-. minus. <laughs> but you know what? It, it actually worked out for you, though. That's that's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You and I are similar, though, too, Tom, because I started working at a card store when I was 12 years old. And um, wow. I worked in card stores until I was 17 throughout my high school years. And when I read your story, you know, you worked in card stores during your high school years as well. I thought that we're a little similar that way. I didn't become what you are today, but the fact that we as collectors do start out a lot of times working as young kids and collecting, and but we see a lot more when we work into a card store because that's where our love just grows even more. And I can imagine your love for Absolutely. the hobby is just beyond the limits of any other collector because of what you achieved. We have sort of like paths. Obviously, your path yeah. is just incredible. Getting back to the Griffey card. To me, everything about the Griffey card is perfect, except for one thing. There are way too many of them with poor centering. The only explanations I could ever come up with were it's because it was the first card, and being the first card cutting was erratic. It was by design, or whoever was in charge of cutting failed. 
What are your thoughts, Tom? So I actually have a, an answer for you. Do you really? I want to hear this. This, of, this yeah. is the thing that's boggled me for years. I want to hear this answer. I really do. So back when Upper Deck started, they imported all that paper that was used. It was so pure white, it's actually illegal to produce in the United States because of the purity of the stock, the amount of bleach or whatever yeah. they used for yeah. mm-hmm. making it so white. And it's also very dense. All of that paper was imported from Europe. And when it was imported, they didn't have humidity-controlled warehouses. Everything came to very dry Southern California. And then, you know, if it gets moist one day, whatever, the paper expands and contracts. So there was no control of over the paper and how it was expanding or contracting. And the, the sheets were laid out with the factory set in mind. So card number one on sheet number one mm-hmm. is card number one. Right. Card number 10 is on the far right. Card number 91 is on the bottom left, and card number 100 was on the bottom right. Okay. And there was a slipstream machine that was used to cut the sheets. So the sheets were fed in. It would slit them one way and then slice them off completely the other way. And it's a one-cut process, meaning that they're bordered, not borderless, so that any time the card was cut one way, it would fatten or lessen the lines basically on the other card because they shared one border. There wasn't a, a gutter. A borderless card shares a gutter. Gotcha. And you can trim them more consistently because you have you can adjust how much gutter you're cutting from each side. I gotcha. The, the main thing that they found out, and this is in the middle of printing when they were super, super slow because nobody knew what they were doing. Right. Why not, please? <laughs> <laughs> nobody knew. So somebody failed. Used, it was bizarre. Exactly. But okay. so what they ended up doing is that they the sheet itself, the sweet spot of the sheet for cutting and everything else was in the middle. So it was basically card thirty well, I think it was twenty one and it kind of had this rainbow effect down to card seventy one. So the the top two rows, the end of row three and same on the bottom were the ones that got sacrificed because the majority of the sheet to keep the cutting consistent with the humidity and everything else, that that was the focus of the sheet. It wasn't on card one or 10 or any of those sheets or any of those numbers. It was always the middle so that the majority of the cards would be more centered. That makes sense. But it's unfortunate because of what Griffey became and the amount of those cards yeah. that were very off-center because there's really some ugly ones out there. You have to have seen those ones too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's an actually, and there's another thing too, because because card one was in the top corner, some right. of the press one, they would take a stack of sheets and they would snap it. So they would literally pick up uh, maybe 50 sheets at a time, and then they would snap it on the the pallet okay. on the other side. And you would actually see thumbprints on the Griffey, like right in the middle of his face, because mm-hmm. sometimes the wet, the ink was still a little wet. Oh man! And then see thing right in the middle of his face because of somebody's thumb. <laughs> when they picked it up and snapped it. That's fantastic. I don't know if you know, but it's something I've always wanted to know. I've heard guesstimates over the years. Do you know the actual print run of the Griffey rookie card? Um, I don't know for sure. But the only the only number I would have heard is the same that you know you would have heard is just guessing. What did you hear? Well, I know that curious. we actually uh, over a million. I actually heard two million. But, uh, okay. W- would you be surprised by two million? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in a way, because I know that 
I don't know the exact amount of cases that were produced. Right. And then um, the Griffey card had a lot of off-cutting and a lot of damage issues, and so there were a lot used for customer service. Okay. So, and there's, so I played softball in, on an Upper Deck team in 1990, I think before the baseball card season had started, so it was technically still the 1989 card series year. And there were always rumors of, because I played with Preston and a bunch of other people, it wasn't the, the company wasn't huge, so to get 10, 12 people out there, you got from everybody. And a lot of the Preston were the most talented baseball players anyway. <laughs> so they would come out and they're like, oh, we reprinted the, or we printed a 100 up Griffey card today, or sheet today. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> there, there was such a big demand for that set, and they just made more to just meet the demand. So do you know about that, that their extras were actually printed for mass release? It wouldn't surprise me too much that it happened. So I, I never saw a sheet. It, it was always the, the white whale, you know, that somebody would come in and talk about it or whatever the press was. Basically, the 100-up sheet would have been used for, you know, had it been done, it would have been used for customer service replacement. Gotcha. And then that would have been the original intent. The secondary usage for it is to sell them at a premium mm-hmm. because they're worth more than the penny or so it took, it took to manufacture it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Despite its large print run, are you surprised the car isn't worth more today? Yes, absolutely. So I have a story on that too. So back in the day, so I was going to, I was working full-time at Upper Deck and I also worked uh, full-time as a student. I was a college student as well. And so during the packaging process, when they finally got it running, the machines would break down all the time. It was mm. the slowest, most horrible machinery you've ever seen. They had suction cups <laughs> that would grab the cards and put them onto a conveyor belt. Like It's so bizarre. It was like kids' toys that they taped together and made these things work. So some of the people who were there, there were some a lot of Spanish-speaking people, and then there were some English-speaking people. And some of the kids from my college, I got jobs as temporary employees as they come and work the line and run the machine. So in the very, very, very beginning, they were just testing the packaging machine. So they had printed cards, and they would run the cards through the machine, and then they we would open them up physically, and then take out the cards, put them back in the machine, run it again, same, same, same. And then when they were ready to start the actual production run, they had us hand destroy. This is how much time we had waiting, because uh-huh. we could destroy all these cards. <laughs> And so anybody who spoke English, I told, I showed the Griffey card to them. I said, well, don't rip this card. Whatever you do, just take it and set it to the side. Because, I, you know, in my head, I said, in five years, this card's going to be worth $100. That was like the target number in my head, just based on how Mattingly was and how, you know, the Eric Davis was and mm-hmm. all the other kind of super-duper cards back in the day. Absolutely. Yeah, so I wouldn't let people destroy them because I, I just thought they were ripping $100 bills. Yeah. You were pretty much right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I figured they were going to be, you know, $100 within five years and then grow steadily from there. And uh, it did. And then it stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they still have, they still have value, but yeah, the value now versus what I had thought. And of course the industry is a lot smaller than it was back then. You're right. When I was a kid and I was eight years old at the time when it came out and it was the card for me that was love at first sight. And it was about $100 almost when it came out. It was something I could not afford, but it's something I always stared at whenever I went to a card store. The raw card is about $40, but then if you have the graded card, 
that's a gem mint 10, which again, like I said, the centering is so poor on these cards, it's kind of hard to get a gem mint 10. And to be honest with you, it's been my life goal to actually find a gem mint 10 raw and then get it graded and be celebrating with a 10. Tom, it's been 25 years. I still have not done that yet. Yeah. <laughs> the gem mint 10 now is about 500 or $600. To me, the raw card, and I don't know if you agree with me, but the raw card alone should be about $200. Just on how iconic that card is, his career, how great he was, and his legacy. And the fact that people still go after that card nonstop. So why is it only $40? Well, if there were 2 million cards of it produced, or over a million, and then I wouldn't let anybody destroy him. So you can blame me for that, too. So there's another 150 <laughs> or whatever that are out there. But... uh. Uh, you know, so a lot of it has changed because of just how things have changed. Sure. But there were so many cards produced. I mean, that's that's the reason why, quite yeah. honestly. And and actually, if if that number is kind of true, and I I think the grading report, what do they have like sixty thousand graded cards? Just the Griffey? Yeah, it's something I, absurd. I heard some report right. like that. Yeah, it's a large amount. I think it's the most common graded card, the most frequently graded card, I should say, of all of them. I think. What do you think a Gem like Mint, it. PSA, or Beckett Gem Mint, what do you think one of those should be valued at, considering what we're talking about here and how hard it is to get one that is Gem Mint? I think they one sold for like 10 grand or... Did it really? Well, like that at one point. Really? I thought so. But like the very first Gem Mint 10. Okay. thought it went for some really astronomical number, 10 grand, 20 grand, something like that. But nowadays you can buy one for about 500 or $600. They've yeah. really come down a lot, but to me, they should be valued a, a lot more than what they are. That's just where I'm going with it. It, it should be more of a, a more valued card than it is. I, I think so too, but if there were that many produced, and there were a lot, you know, no matter how you break down the math, there's still a lot of them because mm -hmm. the, the machinery was just so horrible packaging the product and the demand became so, so much for the, for the product. Every time, you know, we're, I think we had, we were telling, I know the VP of sales at that point, Jay McCracken, he kind of told the story about how he had to keep everybody at bay because they were told they were going to make 200 cases a day. And then he'd call down at the end of the day, how many do we make? Oh, 22. He's allocating 200 and he can only get them 22. Wow. And then the next day it's, you know, 27 and the next day it's 26. And like, how many are we predicting today? Oh, 200. <laughs> how many do we make? 22. You know, same thing. It's so, so that sort of helped create some of the excitement to it because it was so hard to get. Oh, no question. And then by the time it hit the shelves, it just totally disappeared. I've read that Ken Griffey Jr. actually owns over a hundred of his upper deck rookie cards. That's pretty cool. And it has to be really cool for you to be connected with Griffey forever. How would you describe your relationship with Griffey over the years? I'd imagine it's pretty special. Well, as far as he and I personally? Yeah. Do you guys have a relationship or did you have a relationship oh. during that time? <laughs> no. <laughs> the, the, the kind of, the, there's a lot of like weird background stuff. So to answer the question specifically, no. Okay. Um, there was a show, this is in the early, early 90, maybe 90, okay. that he was signing at. Mm -hmm. It was in Southern California. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to, he's six months older than I am. Yeah, so not much older. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, we're pretty much the same age. He, he was a year ahead of me in school, if you will, being in November and then he being in May. We're pretty much the same age, and 
there's a lot of similarities. So he went to San Bernardino Spirit, and I actually went to Cal State San Bernardino the very next year. It had nothing to do with him or anything, you know. You were stalking him. Let's just get that clear. I was pretty much stalking him. <laughs> so he put a restraining order on me, and that's pretty much the extent of it. <laughs> but I would go to San Bernardino Spirit games all the time because that was the local team, and like almost season tickets, and it was a great park and everything else. But uh, so the, And then there are some other weird similarities. So the first house I ever bought, was right before uh, I moved to Upper Deck in Carlsbad. It was in that area. Yeah. And I bought it from a lady named Sheila Griffey. Oh, who had wow. no relationship <laughs> at all. And then when I sold that house, I uh, bought a house in New Jersey. I took a job out there for scoreboard. And when I sold that house to come back to California in 99, that Griffey bought that house. I'm like, how many Griffeys are there in the world? Never mind. Wow. <laughs> you know? So there's a lot of like crazy weird things like that. But uh so anyway, going back to the story about this so I thought okay, he's signing at this show and I should go in there and uh, you know, introduce myself to him and all that and, and like in your head you're like, Oh, we'll go play Playstation together, we'll be pals <laughs> and like <laughs> you know, stupid things like that. Right? right. And then so like I'm like, No, I'm not gonna go because uh you know, he was a, a, a hero as far as, you know, what he did on the baseball field and, and he was so like dynamic as a player and uh, i was like oh, i'm just going to keep my hero at an arm's length you know i just sure. uh, it's better to if you meet your heroes sometime and they're not who you thought they were going to be it's kind of what was i liking that guy for you yeah know? right right <laughs> so i was like no i'm just going to keep it at a distance and so um i think we physically met twice one was for the you crash the card um we did a, uh, a marketing gimmick at Upper Deck. Right. And Griffey was our spokesperson. And we gave away the, I think it was 94, Collector's Choice was the card series it was going to be in. Okay. Yeah. So so we had um, Griffey pose with two kids and as if they won the contest and they crashed his card. So they got to be on his trading card. And uh, so VJ did the, the photographs and the, Griffey was very... Uh, so I was sort of art directing it in the back. I didn't have a whole lot because, you know, BJ's an artist as his own, and I'm just trying to help him here and there right. with stuff. And there's other people in the room, of course. And Griffey was very standoffish to all the adults. Like, they were going to take advantage of him or do something. And then when he was dealing with the kids who were posing with him, he was fantastic, like, because they're pure and innocent, they're not going to get autographs and put it on eBay or, you know, sell it at a... I don't know if eBay existed then, but not ninety four. You know, sell no. it for yeah, sell it for premium or anything else. They were pure and innocent, if you will, and and he responded very well to that. So and he actually responded pretty well to me because I didn't interact, I didn't force any interaction, I just stood in the back and then somebody introduced us at the end and said, Oh, this is the guy who made your trading card and he's like, Oh, nice to meet you. <laughs> that was it? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Oh wow. Well good, nice to meet you. And then we yeah, we did some pictures too. So I think it's actually some of those pictures. So that was from that photo shoot. Yeah. It's interesting because I ask about your relationship because that card, and I know you've probably heard this before in the past, that card could be in the Hall of Fame one day. And your name, along with his name, should be with that card. So to me, while you may not actually have a relationship, you guys are connected forever in baseball lore. Well, it's very, very awesome for you to say. I, that's that's pretty cool to hear. I mean, you should really you. know that because, like I said, your journey in the hobby has been quite a path. You started out by creating something that reached legendary status at such a young age. 
to now being the president at Sage Collectibles. How do you view your own legacy in the hobby? And what have you learned from your success and that of the 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card? Why well, I, I kind of joke with people about, you know, if there was a Hall of Fame for trading cards, I'd be in it. You like, would. No, you definitely <laughs> would be. You would. Like me and Cyberger, I think. Or, <laughs> I don't know who else would be in there. But there's a lot of things that happen in the industry that are the result of my work. So like the first, the first autograph ever on a trading card put into a product was my thing. Um, the die cutting of cards was my idea. The tamper evident packaging, the, it, it just goes, there's so many things. Actually, the star rookie card design, the one that Griffey was on, I actually designed that card. So, and I say I designed it. What, what I ended up doing is that I sketched out something that I was looking for because the rookies are the hardest guys to get photos of. So I designed it with one photo only and then a very large bio on the back. And so I sketched out the design and I gave that to the very talented artist who made it the incredible design that it is. So I kind of came up with the idea, but I didn't like create the actual thing. I created the, the napkin sketch on yellow lined paper. That <laughs> well, you had the blueprint. You know, the design. Yeah. 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 Like the basic kind of starting point. Absolutely. There's a lot of things that I've done for the industry that... Um, that I take a lot of pride in. Actually, um, digital printing, we were the first ones to do digital printing. That was with Sage. And then we did a variable data printing on digital printing, which allowed every card potentially to be unique. So it had the sequential numbering printed actually on it as opposed to crash numbered after. Sure. And then uh, we created different bios for the special card. This is in 2000. A lot of stuff like that. Pretty cool to be associated with and uh, still see living on. The, the sticker process too. Yeah. With cards. So I know a lot of people have a negative opinion on that, but the only reason they have a negative opinion on that is because of the marketing dollars thrown at creating negative opinion on that. Because Sage was so small, we didn't have anywhere near the budget of an upper deck or something like that. So there were a lot of like, oh, the value of a, they don't touch the card, they don't do this, yeah. they don't do that. And so it has a negative opinion, but it's actually way more effective as a as a piece because for example um i've received competitors cards unsigned coming back from an athlete so if i was an unscrupulous person it already has the guarantee on the back of it i could have written anything sure and sold it as an original autograph card because the guarantee is the warranty of authenticity is printed on the back of the card before it's ever sent out to be signed with a sticker process the stickers go to the athletes. The cards are printed and handled by us only. And the only time they ever meet is when they are handled by us. So they're handled. The, well, I actually did a, a NASCAR series when I was at scoreboard. And the, uh, the drivers and the crew chiefs and stuff like that, they would sign the cards directly in the cards. And they'd ship it back to us. And they had no idea how to package anything. Yeah, so, so they were damaged. <laughs> they were all damaged and yeah. dinged up. And, and then the amount of... Um, it's just it's just not an effective if you look at it from a statistical point of view it's very it's not a very efficient or sophisticated way of doing it and it's not like they're sleeping in bed with the, the carts or you know sure. <laughs> you like more, my baby right. and then when it leaves like they they don't even touch the cart like they touch with a finger you know on the, right. on the top of the cart to handle it and then they slide it scratching at the bottom of the cart grab another one sign it, scratch it across the bottom, sliding it over. So, you know, things like that. So, I mean, there's a lot of cool things in the industry that have happened that I've had a, a hand in, and I, I think it's pretty cool to, to see that. 
Tom, absolutely tremendous stuff. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you so much. It's always great to talk about trading cards and uh, especially the Griffith card. A special thank you to Tom Guideman for joining me. It was a thrill to take an in-depth look at my favorite card of all time, the 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. Rookie Card. I appreciate everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Chris Stuber and at BB Cards Daily. I'm Chris Stuber, and this has been the Baseball Cards Daily Podcast.